Hi, welcome to Dark Fascination. This is Mary. And this is April. Dark Fascination is a true crime podcast where we talk about all things murder, spooky, scary, people that creep around your house and look into your windows. That's just me. Honestly, I was going to start today talking about how uh, I started watching a new show on Netflix by accident. Oh, is this uh, dark versus in the dark? (laughs) After we recorded last week's podcast, April was like, hey, watch this show. Yeah, uh, I enjoyed it. It's called In the Dark. It's a CW show. Uh, The basic premise is it's a young woman who is blind and she has a friend, a young friend, and suddenly this friend gets murdered rather mysteriously. And so she decides to set out and find out what happened. Um, And there's a cast of friends and family that's, um, it's not all dark. There's some humor there, but the premise is rather dark. Uh, And so I I said, Mary, check it out. It's got some darkness and some humor. I think you'd like it. So I was like, well, that seems right up my alley. So I go to Netflix and I search dark and the show comes up and I start watching it. And I'm like looking at these women and I'm like, which one of these women is blind? Like they all seem fine. Also, why did April not mention that it was in German? <laughs> mixed so, up there. so I get like halfway through the show and I'm like, this show is pretty good. Like what is going to happen? some supernatural stuff starts happening and I'm like I don't get how they're gonna bring in like maybe somebody goes blind now it was at that point that I worked out that I was watching a completely different show (laughs) well at least you know uh between us we're probably gonna have something at least somewhat dark and entertaining so you lucked out there but a little miscommunication (laughs) (laughs) well the funny thing was is that then you were like well are you watching in the dark now and I was like no (laughs) You're like, I'm, I'm like, on this. It's good. I'm like four episodes into this German show now, and I'm watching it in German, so it has a, a nice kind of like urgency to it. Like German is, is a very, I don't know, urgent language. It's like very Achtung, and so, and so I feel adding to the the amount of like tension I feel when I'm watching it. I do find that I feel like people speak with purpose when they speak. Might be a might be a lighter way to say that. Uh, I spent a couple of weeks in Germany when I was like 14, but it, I don't, it was, it was fairly disastrous in terms of like the things that happened on the trip. If I'm honest with you. Definitely have to cover that at some point. (laughs) Honestly, it could be its own. I think it could be its own episode because one, I'm pretty sure I could have died on several different occasions. And then two, a very creepy guy came on trip with us who turned out to be like our German teacher's friend who was also learning German and anyway it, it was weird so we'll talk about that another time should we talk about some true crime happenings yeah so that was the personal roundup now let's do the news roundup so here's something that happened um and it happened about mid-may this year so not that long ago it happened in Huntington Beach California have you ever been there no I've never yeah. been anywhere <laughs> She said after telling a story about going to Germany. Well, just to, just to paint the picture for you, it's more of a casual beach town vibe. It's more like working folks. It's always kind of reminding me of Florida, more so than its hoity-toity neighbor, uh, Laguna Beach. I, I hung around there a little bit uh, as I lived in Orange County for a couple of years. It was a group about of about eight homeless people were unfortunately fed food poisoned with capsicum, which is the stuff they put in pepper spray, but like two times more powerful. So not like someone was just bad at cooking. 
Correct. It wasn't like old food. It, it wasn't a, a mistake. This was intentional. We're confirmed it's intentional because the person who did this filmed the reactions of the people they had poisoned. No! Isn't that just the most horrible thing ever? It's so What, it was like a YouTuber or something? I, clearly they did it for some, either to watch themselves or to share with people, which is just disturbing. And these poor people, you know, they had like seizure, like symptoms, and a <gasps> stomach pain, vomiting. This was serious stuff. And luckily no one died, but they did have to go to the hospital. Did they catch the person responsible for it? They have one person in custody. I don't know if that means that there might be more, but they definitely do have one person in custody. So hopefully there's some justice for these folks coming. That's crazy. Can you imagine how sad that would be? Someone gives you like a hot meal. I assume it was a hot meal. And then it's poisoned. Yeah. I mean, you already probably have trouble trusting people. You're on the street and fighting for your life and, and don't have all the creature comforts. And then the horrible turn of society. Not to be callous, but obviously we know that I struggle a little bit with with my feelings. But what, don't you think it would make a really terrible video? Like, so the, the video you end up filming is just what people having diarrhea and being really sick. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand, like, how why that would be good. No, I, I don't understand it, luckily myself. I mean, thankfully. Um, I don't know what the appeal is there, but you're right. This would be disgusting um <laughs> no matter who it is but right prank ends with watching someone shit themselves that seems like a bad video yeah I, i'm not gonna be entertained <laughs> no it's awful it's just gross this is more on the level like don't fuck with cats where people are like seeing it and just horrified uh, um if you haven't watched don't fuck with cats on netflix do don't google anything about it um and we should totally do an episode of it at some point but don't think about don't think about Googling or looking it up. Just just go and watch it. My husband and I watched it with having no clue what it was about and were totally, totally glued to it. I will say the videos in it are horrific. I could not watch them um, at all. I had to keep looking away. And I obviously don't really want to imagine the video of people being poisoned, but I can only imagine it would be awful. Like it wouldn't be like there's nothing good about that that would remotely think that that would be good sick stuff i'm glad that people are going to be okay there was also like a lot of kind of strange like cold case crime stuff happened this week uh, madeline mccann case the kind of missing four-year-old who went missing in uh, portugal german police having a suspect in custody or yeah. someone who could have been around at the time um and then also with the australian paedophile ring that was busted in the same town with the, with links to the William Tyrrell case. Um, so that's two like pretty high profile cold cases. Obviously, we don't have that much information about either of those yet, but uh, as we do, we'll we'll definitely be looking at them. And I think the Madeleine McCann case in, in particular is one that's always really haunted me. Yeah, looking forward to uh, getting more details on how they crack that one. Yeah, the Australian case in particular with William Tyrrell sounds like an, an absolutely massive investigation by the police. Well done to the Australian police, which took two years and involved like 60 officers undercover and all sorts of things. And, and four children were rescued. Just horrific, 
situation i'm probably gonna cry stuff with kids really gets me so um i'll probably stop talking about that right now but uh it's uh hopefully you know that family will get some answers soon i'd definitely love to hear some details about the modern police investigation that led to uh to their recovery so okay so um moving on from kind of modern stuff we're actually going to go you know we talked about this a little bit in the previous episode but um i'm we're not only going to do British stuff, but like, you know, I'm British and I started with all the stuff I just kind of knew about. So, and and I hope that some of these are a little bit more uh, new to some of our listeners out there. So we're going to talk today about the Moores murderers, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. I do want to do a little bit of a trigger warning. This is a bit of a rough case. It's uh, kids involved, right? Yeah. So kids also uh, rape and... Um, just you know general exploitation and violence Uh, you know we're not one for like massively one for like details details um but i'll try and warn you if if we're kind of going there but um also uh i really love kids so i might cry um so bear with me cool uh so we're going to start towards the end so we're going to go all the way back to the 1965 um and again we're in england the north of england so austin powers (laughs) exactly um just imagine everybody in this going like maybe after (laughs) everything they say and that's pretty much what it's like to to live in the north of england (laughs) great a a picture has been painted a picture has been painted think of beautiful northern towns full of people in blue velvet uh, bell bottoms and myra hindley with her bouffant helmet hair now we're talking So we're going to start with um, Edward Evans. He turned 17 in the summer of 65. He was a tall, slim guy, light brown hair. He had a really cute smile in in pictures of him. He lived with his parents, Edith and John. Um, He had a brother, Alan, and a sister, who I think was also called Edith. Edward was a Manchester United supporter. He would go to Old Trafford, which is their home ground a lot. His friends described him as a sociable lad who really liked how he dressed. So on October 6th in 1965, it was a really crisp autumnal day. Edward arrived home from work early and told his parents he was going to meet a friend in a pub. And then he was going to go to watch Manchester United versus Helsinki. He went out and his mother, Edith, remembered that she never saw him alive again. Hmm. Edward was... He was a regular at a very familiar kind of famous uh, bar called Auntie's Bar on the Oxford Road. He um, had a drink. He chatted with the landlord who kind of remembered it was unusual for him to come in on his own. And he was on in on his own because he he kind of had made a date with his friend last night and was like, oh, I'll meet you there tomorrow. But his friend had just thought like it wasn't real. And, you know, there was no kind of texting in those days. Um, so his friend remained at home. Edward drank up and he said goodnight to George, the landlord, and he kind of headed outside and he went to see the the match. And then sometime between 10 and 10.30, he, he stopped at Central Station for a drink. In England, there's like a thing called a buffet bar, which is kind of like a place in a train station where you can get a drink and something to eat. But it was shut and he was standing at a milk vending machine again. <laughs> I feel like these are very British details. Just but don't yeah. understand this one. <laughs> you lost you, me. You could indeed bend milk. 
in the 60s. But why in, would you? In a glass bowl. Um, in a glass bowl? Now in a glass, no, in a glass, a glass bottle, hmm. uh, to be fair. And then he saw another man, a tall, thin, dark-haired man, uh, try and get into the buffet bar. So Edward told him it was shut. They had a conversation. And when the man invited him for a drink and said his sister was waiting outside, Edward agreed. So they drove to Hattersley, where a house on 16 Wardlebrook Avenue, uh, where Edward was brutally murdered. Unfortunately for Edward, the man and the sister he had met were notorious serial killers Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. Edward, unlike the rest of Brady and Hindley's victims, they left him in an upstairs bedroom instead of doing what they normally did, and we'll go through that. And Edward was still there the following morning when the police arrived, um, and they were alerted by a phone call from David Smith, who was... um, Myra Hindley's brother-in-law, and who Brady and Hindley had coerced into witnessing the murder. When the police arrived at Wardlebrook Avenue, they found what could only be described as a complete house of horrors and one of the most notorious stories of sex, lust, ultraviolence, domestic violence, child killing and abductions began to unravel before their eyes. And I, I will say that I really grew up on on these two black and white pictures, that bouffant hair, those empty eyes. Um, this is definitely one that's kind of burned into the psyche of many a British person. So Ian was born um, in Glasgow uh, to Margaret Peggy. I don't know why Peggy is short for Margaret. Anyway. Yeah, that's the second time I feel like we've heard that. I know, right? Is that a British thing? I don't know. And he grew up in a tough kind of... Th- Places use the word slum, but I, I would say gritty. <laughs> I don't like that word, uh, of the of gorbals. And, and Peggy Stewart was a waitress in a tea room. Again, very British. Uh, so she found it really difficult bringing up a child, of its, uh, child on her own. And she wanted to spare him the social stigma of being illegitimate, which was a thing back in those days. So she gave up Ian to uh, another family called the Sloan family who adopted him into their own and they raised him as one of his own. It, they've never identified Ian's father. And uh, Peggy Stewart claimed he was a journalist who died a few months before his son was born. But there's some holes in that story Ian showed some troubling signs of dysfunctional behavior and moodiness he could have violent tantrums which ended with him banging his head against the wall Peggy you know she would visit her son she indulged him with gifts um, and Ian really worked out who Peggy Stewart was and and likewise deduced the Sloans were not his real family Others in the neighbourhood also started to realise uh, that he had socially unacceptable origins. And this, and also his horrible personality, he was really unsociable and sullen. He was terrible at football, which obviously in England really made him unpopular with local kids. He was using the name Ian Sloan at the time, and he really came to resent being illegitimate, and he began to see himself as a rebellious outsider, not bound by the same rules. Uh, <laughs> This is, you know, Ian in his head. Right. That's not how I see him. Uh, I see him as a fucking monster. So he was a bright student. And and many reports say handsome, but I I don't agree. I'll put a picture on the Instagram and you can decide. I don't think so. He was well-dressed. He was not well-liked. At 11, he entered like a grammar school, Shawlands Academy. Yeah, in England, they used to make you take a test at 11. And then if you were clever, you went to a good school. And if you weren't, you had to go to a trade school or something like that. It was weird. Yeah, he, just make it easy and based on your zip code like we do here. 
it's funny, like you, you kind of assume that American and England are, are pretty similar and then you then you really remember all the strange details of things in England and you realise that it's really different. Vending machines. <laughs> what are you going to do if you need milk and the shops are shut? That's what I want to say. Well, of course, the shops are never shut in America, so there's that. Also, people have refrigerators, which I don't know if everyone had a refrigerator in those days. Oh, My dad used, used to say they used to just put the milk outside. I'm not going to comment on that. It has blown my mind. True story. We used to get milk delivered in glass bottles and we stopped because uh, the birds, like blue tits and stuff, would... Um, what did you call me? <laughs> peck through the the tops of the milk and drink the cream off the top, so we had to stop getting it. Oh, that's so adorable. I know, right? It's probably uh, dangerous, yeah. You can see why you only, <laughs> If only the rest of my childhood was as adorable. Uh, Ian was lazy, didn't apply himself. Um, he started smoking, and so he was, a, he was kind of a rebellious teen. But then, you know, the most rebellious teens kind of like turned to music and maybe dressing. Uh, Ian turned to a fascination with Nazi Germany, which is never good. Oh, uh, bad call, Ian. <laughs> pageantry, Nazi symbolism. He asked other boys for souvenirs that their fathers brought back from the war and when he was playing games like war games and stuff he would also insist on being a german ian also became known for perverse and sadistic tendencies here so he would bully small children he would torture animals in a variety of grotesque ways um and you know yeah i mean this is kind of like triad indicator psychologists talk about torturing small animals as one bedwetting as another um and i don't know how if he wet the bed but he definitely kind of hit a lot of kind of the other antisocial and, and very uh, cruel to animals by the time he was a teenager he'd gone to juvie or juvenile court several times for burglary and housebreaking he was given probation but on this third time and maybe this is a British thing too, he was deemed incorrigible <gasps> and the court ordered him to leave Glasgow. <laughs> exiled? <laughs> no, he was exiled from Glasgow. His mother had moved to Manchester and had married an Irish bloke called Patrick Brady. So two months before his 17th birthday, Ian left the Sloanes, who he'd still been living with, and, and went down to join his mother and her husband. He didn't really like Patrick Brady, but he took his stepfather's name anyway, and he became Ian Brady. People out there who are not from Scotland or England may not know, but you know there is some relative animosity, uh, particularly in the past, between Scotland and England. And as a Scottish man exiled in an English city, Ian started to feel... He felt really isolated and he would spend hours in his room listening to music uh, and he developed some interest in the writings of Nietzsche, Marquis de Sade. He really started to, you know, really get into some of that kind of fascist ideology, cruelty, torture. He started to think he was a superior creature and superior creatures had the right to control and destroy weaker ones. Classic 17-year-old stuff. I think I was still just listening to MTV and saving up for, like, tie-dye skirts at this point. He got a job as a butcher's assistant. I read a lot about him being a butcher's assistant, and some people are like, well, maybe his experience of regularly cutting meat away from bone, like, grew his interest in physical acts of mutilation and murder. I really love butchery and never considered the link between 
wanting to very nicely cut up a chicken ballotine and I'm imagining him in the setting of, of cutting meat, but I'm not, I, there's no link either for me of like a butcher and a, someone who hurts people and stuff like that. I'm only just imagining him covered in blood already as part <laughs> of the practice. I think it's creepy and scary as fuck. You know, <laughs> yeah. that like a murderer is also really good with a meat saw. Yeah. He started to drink. He would go to the horse races. So he started thieving He was convicted a couple more times. He was fined for publicly drunk. He spent some time at Strange Ways, which is a notorious prison. Um, In prison, as you do, he started to learn more illegal techniques for acquiring money. And he was like, I'm going to become an amazing criminal. I'm going to do like these huge bank heists and I'm never going to do manual labor again. And and he wanted to appear respectable so he could become like a mob boss. So he studied bookkeeping. Definitely <laughs> sounds like he's got a lot of fantasies in his head that he's been thinking about for a while. And I, I know background checks, you know, then aren't what they were now. But like, I think if you've been in prison like multiple times for like theft, that you probably would find it difficult to get a job as a bookkeeper. Yeah, one would imagine. Um, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong. People can be re- rehabilitated, but Ian Brady was not rehabilitated. He, yeah, ugh. he worked as a labour for Boddington's Brewery. Um, I've not had a Boddington's in so long. I don't think they have them here. Rarely, yeah. I think you have to go to somewhere <laughs> themed. Themed? <laughs> you know, I'll get your Boddington's <laughs> Get your pie and your venison milk. Get a scotch egg, boiled haddock. I don't know. About two years later, he met Myra Hindley. She had just been hired at Millwoods where he was working as a clerk and she was a shorthand typist. For nearly 12 months, he wasn't that interested in her or he was playing hard to get, whereas she liked him enormously. But at the Christmas office party, uh, after a few drinks, Brady asked Hindley for a date. <laughs> the worst Christmas office party story ever. Oh, like I've been at some bad Christmas office parties and that that takes a cake. Sounds pretty rough. Brady and Henley developed just a terrible, awful union. Brady was increasingly interested in Nazi-era atrocities. He had a growing sadomasochistic sexual appetite. No judgment if you're into that. That's totally fine. But it's becoming clear that it, it wasn't something that he could do with people who are consensual and I think a huge part of the BDSM community is consent and you know safe words and all of that good stuff and I know that there's a huge amount of uh, people in that community who care and protect everyone in it and Brady was not that. Henley was you know really under his influence she had loved children before and loved babysitting she stopped doing that she stopped going to church they started planning to become a Bonnie and Clyde pair. They started planning a series of bank robberies. And then Brady really started to become fascinated with rape, murder for sexual gratification. They started taking photos of themselves, kind of acting out some of these fantasies. They had their own time delay camera and dark room. One of their kind of early ambitions was to kind of do amateur pornography but that didn't really work out. Let me ask, um, is, was Myra already someone who had these ideas of how they wanted to be, or do you think she was turned by Ian? 
So that's a really good question. And I have actually spent like a while. She really paints herself as someone that was abused and under the control of Ian. She claims Ian threatened her. She refers to life in the relationship as being in Brady prison. In one of her letters, she talks about him urinating on her. Uh, She talks about how humiliated she was when he did the things to her. She had... There's a quote from her that says, I had no self-esteem or self-respect, whereas before I met him and for the year I worked with him before he first made a date with me, I was an attractive, confident and sociable teenager, never short of dates. She claims a lot of stuff about Brady that he drugged her grandmother by putting Nembatol, like which is a sleeping pill, in her tea. Uh, he threatened to push her grandmother down the stairs to her death. She talks about how Brady sent her to libraries to collect books on like Marquis de Sade books and sexual murder books he would read these books in the night and then wake her up and then rape her one time he came back with a sweeping brush and using the handle and head and turns he beat me beat her and he also used to you know she claims that he used to sit cleaning the rifle his rifle and when she would look up at him he would be pointing it at her with the finger slowly pulling the catch back And she would say stuff like, shoot me and put me out of my misery. However, Mm. he claims the opposite. And he also wrote a letter to claiming that she was absolutely a willing participant. And then one of the later murders where she claims she went to the bathroom and when she came back, he had murdered the person he said that nope it was all her she was a willing participant she loved to help him find victims that he wouldn't have been able to find victims without her and uh, honestly their ruse for getting victims in their car really really relied on her yeah because there's a lot of um documentation whether people you know still feel like it's valid or not around the sexual status predators who use that tactic of whittling down someone's self-esteem usually partner and then eliciting control over them and kind of like a Stockholm syndrome like getting them to do what they want them to do because it is a a good thing for them a trade-on of uh you give me something I want if I do everything you say perfectly but we know that's not always true and that it's not always this dynamic um sometimes bad apple meets bad apple so I was just curious if it was one of those scenarios or But I guess we'll find out more about her and their crimes. One of the things that really tips me over the edge with Myra is there is like a photo of her with her dog smiling and laughing in black and white on the moors. And it turns out she is uh, standing on Pauline Reed's grave. And it's such a you know, dichotomy between this, like, smiling, laughing woman with her dog, her pet dog, and what it actually is, which is which is a trophy of uh, Pauline's murder. And so my belief is that she's a fucking shitbag. I feel you answered my question there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking shitbag uh, of the highest order. I do, I do think it's... I, I think there's some complexity in their relationship, but in no way does it affect... Uh, what she did, what she was complicit at. Um, it's not and we'll, a way story. Let's go into like how, how they did it and, and then maybe we can revisit this discussion. Yeah. On the 12th of July, 1963, Brady told Hindley that he wanted to commit the perfect murder. 
he told her, drive around in a van that he'd borrowed. He would follow on his motorcycle, and when he spotted a victim, he would flash his headlights. Hindley started driving around, and they would saw a little eight-year-old girl. Um, Brady flashed his lights, but Hindley wouldn't stop because she knew the girl, and it was a neighbor of her mother. People know each other. You know, it's the 60s. She wasn't doing it out of care. She was doing it as preservation. So sometimes in the evening, they continued to drive around and Brady signaled Hindley again and they stopped for 16-year-old Paula Reed. So Paula was a schoolmate of Myra's sister, Maureen, and she was on her way to a dance. That just makes me so sad. So Hindley offered Reed a lift and I can just really imagine Reed being like, oh, okay, because you're Maureen's sister and I'm on my way to a dance and my shoes are uncomfortable and you don't want to ruin your dress. So Hindley and Brady give conflicting statements about the extent to which it was her or Brady responsible for selecting Reed. Myra does say she felt that there would be less attention given to the disappearance of a teenager, you know, because Pauline was 16 and she could have been a runaway than to an eight-year-old who wouldn't be in a runaway. So Reed gets in the van and then Hindley says, uh, hey, I have this really expensive glove and I lost it on the moor. Can you um, help me find it? And so Reed, you know, Pauline agrees and they drive there. And remember, Brady's on his motorcycle. As far as Pauline's concerned, it's just two gal pals in a, in a van. Mm. When they get there to the moor, Hindley tells Reed that, you know, she's asked Brady to help look for this glove. Hindley later claims that she waits in the van while Brady and Reed go out onto the moor and then Brady returns by himself 30 minutes later, gets Hindley and brings her back to to Reed, who's still alive. Reed's clothes are in disarray, but she's got um, two really bad cuts to her throat um, and she's, which the coroner stated were inflicted with considerable force and into which the collar of her coat and her throat chain had been pushed. So she was nearly decapitated. Oh, so awful. I know, it's just horrifying. Hindley then asked Brady, had he raped Pauline? And uh, Brady replied, of course I did. Uh, I mean, it's so awful. It's just like fucking, I just want to go back in time and just like smite them with lightning or something. The fact um, that they're having this like conversation is just yeah. Oof. But also Hindley's bothered by that. He's fucking murdered her, but you're like, well, did he? Did you rape her? Because I don't want you cheating on me or being jealous or whatever. Hindley stays with Reed and, and then Brady goes to get a spade he had hidden nearby because they were very well prepared for the murder and then returns to the van while Brady buries Reed. Brady's version of events is that Hindley was not only present for this but participated in the sexual assault. I mean, clients agree with Brady because they were both arrested. They were both never getting out of jail. Why would he freaking lie about that? How he would convince Pauline to get out of the van while Myra waited behind, she would know that something was amiss. Like, why aren't you looking for this glove? That's a good point, yeah. She was a fucking shitbag of the highest order. It took 19 years to find Pauline's body. It wasn't until June 30th, 1987, after 100 days of searching, that they found Pauline Reed. She was buried three feet below the ground. Um, Pauline Reed's family, like, waited all that time to bury their daughter, and I just can't imagine the anguish of that. 
And that's how much of a shitbag they were. As they were driving home, Brady said to Myra, and this is Myra's account, so take it with a giant pinch of shitbag salt, uh, that if I'd shown any signs of backing out, that she would have finished up in the same grave as Pauline Reed did. And I just said, quote, I know. I would rather that. I'd rather die, like, fighting for our lives than do be part of this shit. Blech. Yeah. Fucking shitbags. Um, <laughs> I can't really find can't say it enough. <laughs> a way to describe them, which like, totally encompasses, like, how strongly I feel about how, how much hatred I have for these two people who thought it was totally chill to just drive around Manchester, pick up young people as if they were just dispensable and then do this to them. It is the most horrific thing. And to do it together... I don't even know how you find someone to commit a murder with you. I, I find it hard to find people to go to the movies with me. Right. So like, I don't know how brazen and shitty you have to be in order to kind of like. Yeah, it's particularly disturbing these two found each other. And, and maybe this is sexist or whatever, but I find it so much harder when there's a woman involved. When I think about this idea that like Myra knew this girl, knew that she was kind of the same age as her sister and could have been in the same situation and yet she doesn't do anything well participates probably like I find that even harder for some reason just because as a woman you know how vulnerable you are and you know how scary it is and you know that you have that your place in the world can be taken away at any time and so to so to participate in this seems worse I think you're diving into the realities of uh, maybe why I find true crime fascinating in some ways. There's an emotional component that just can't be ignored. And there's a violence there, a sexual violence, and the way that she lured her and helped her when she'd probably, statistically speaking, been exposed to some form of a, a power dynamic in her life. And the fact that then she went and you know participated in this is just hard to imagine how anybody could get involved in that. Much less take pleasure in it. Absolutely. And I, and I find it so easy to identify with Pauline here because if sister's female friend pulled up alongside me and was like, you want to lift? I'd probably say yes. Yeah, of you course. Know? Especially, and that's, I don't want to be sweaty when I get to the dance. I don't want my shoes to be dirty. My shoes probably, my feet hurt. I want to get there. I would love a ride. It's dark. I don't want it's to be dark. vulnerable. A million reasons why. And I want to help a friend of a friend. It's shocking. They started to build up kind of a ritual around the killings. And when Brady decided he needed to kill again, he would buy a record. And the buying of the records would become part of their kind of pre-murder ritual. Um, can you guess what the next record uh, Ian Brady bought from Myra Hindley was? I don't want to because I think it'll sound callous. <laughs> I don't think you could have had a more callous pick than the record it actually was. Just it, was it was indeed 24 hours from Tulsa. Oh, no. <laughs> <sighs> That's worse in so many other ways than anything. <laughs> just, um, and I was hoping maybe it would be like a, you know, like a health scale. No, 24 hours from Tulsa. I was thinking like puns or something that would be totally inappropriate, but. (laughs) 
Yeah, what, like the Star Trek theme tune or something. No, it was uh, 24 Hours and Tulsa, which I still think is, like, pretty inappropriate. Yeah, it um, is. It's not as on the nose. Brady also told Henley, here's your record, and uh, he wanted to go for someone younger. Gross. I know. He said that Pauline had put up too much resistance. But also I'm like, I'm fucking glad she did. Good for her. Like, good for you, Pauline. Like, I'm so fucking sorry that happened to you. Fucking sucks, shitbags. They had a bit of a cooling off period four months later, 23rd of November, 1963. They go to a market town, uh, marketplace in Ashton Underline, and they meet 12-year-old, 12-year-old John Kilbride. He had been earning some pocket money by packing up stalls at Ashton Market. So he was hanging around with some friends there and they were eating some broken biscuits that someone had given them. Oh, no, it's awful. I don't know if I'm going to make it through. I'm going to try. So he was approached by Henley. Again, approached by Henley as fucking bait. Fucking bitch. And she asked him to help load some boxes into her car. He agreed and then she offered him a lift home, but Brady was driving. They once again used the lost glove ruse and they drove out to Saddleworth Moor. John Kilbride was the eldest of four brothers. His family described him as a really sweet guy, often to be heard singing and whistling. He has a really little cheeky smile, and all of the photos I saw of him, he was in a school uniform. His mother just knew right away. Like, the quote from her is horrible. It's, I had this terrible feeling that something had happened to him right away because he wasn't the kind of boy who would leave home for any reason. Mm-hmm. Um, Sounds like such a sweetie. Out of the more, Brady raped him and then he killed him. He then returned to the car with one of John's shoes. He would later burn it and uh, when John's grave was finally discovered, it was kind of partly through this remaining shoe that his family were able to identify John. There are multiple photos of Hindley and Brady above their graves and they also use this photo to help find John's grave. I read an article by a criminologist, Professor David Wilson, who also had a reality TV show, serial killer TV show. He believes that this is one of the first real examples of where trophies were taken. But in this case, the trophies were photographs. It is the photo of Myra holding her pet dog on the grave, which uh, led detectives to the site two years later. So at least in this case, John was found fairly quickly. Yeah. That's when you, when you said took the shoe, that's what I was thinking of. But it sounds like the photos replaced the ultimate trophy of like, instead of keeping the things, they kept the photo. And this ritual of like the dog, I guess they take out to the moor. So. Very ritualistic if we start to break it down. There's like the song, there's obviously the moors themselves as this kind of resting place. There's also the there's also the taking of photos the photos are very cute they have their dog with them they're smiling not cute but like they're they're normal photos that one would take if you were on a day out but obviously just have this incredibly dark background to them but it was definitely something that you know you can imagine ian used it's particularly sadistic because we've heard of killers um and predators taking photos of of people and acts and things like that that they keep very private but this was hidden in plain sight it's just an extra creepy kind of element to it they lived with a number of members of myra's family so i think the other thing i find they probably have these photos like lying around um or like up and things like that which is just absolutely just horrifying early in the evening of uh, june 16th in 1964 
Hindley again asked 12 year old Keith Bennett, who was on his way to his grandma's house for help loading some boxes into her brand new mini. And she said she'd drive him home afterwards. Brady was in the back of the van. It was like a mini pickup. She drove to a lay-by on Saddleworth Moor and Brady went off with Bennett to look for the glove. After about 30 minutes, Brady returned alone carrying the spade. And in response to Henley's question, said he had sexually assaulted Bennett and strangled him with a piece of string. Keith Bennett has never been found. And Keith Bennett's mother, Winnie Johnson, searched for Keith until she died at the age of 78. She died never knowing where Keith was buried. And her, you know, her family and Keith's family are still searching for the remains. Brady has toyed with his family on multiple occasions. He, like, wrote a letter saying that there were special instructions in his will, and he wrote that letter to to Keith's brother, um, and that all would be revealed. There was, like, an ongoing court case with, like, suitcases that were in Ian Brady's cell that, you know, apparently would have... Uh, the location but his estate refused to release them and and uh, the court case they lost the court case and weren't able to look at them they searched a lot Keith Bennett's family continued to search like all the time they could and um, in order to try and find Keith Um, but unfortunately they never did we could spend hours on on the search for Keith and and everything they did to try and find Keith but I just kind of want to emphasize what fucking shitbags to not tell them where Keith was. And I really remember as late as um, 2012, which is when Keith's mother, Winnie Johnson, died of everything that they were, they were trying to do. And then in 2017, when uh, they were trying to these suitcases that were in uh, Ian's cell open to see if there was anything that could indicate where Keith was but uh, they were never able to find Keith. I wish somebody had just broken that order and at least given them, like, either there's something here or not. (sighs) Yeah. They only admitted to killing Keith in 1987, which was 21 years after they were originally convicted. And so they put this family through absolute hell. Last, like, thrill of control and manipulation whatever they could grasp from their cells. Police obtained, like, warrants to search, like, Ashworth Hospital, where Ewan was living at the time, living, incarcerated. And also, I I assume this person is also a shitbag, but he had a legal advocate, Jackie Powell, and apparently he had given her a letter which was to be delivered to Keith Bennett's family after Brady had died. And the letter indicated where Keith had been buried. They ended up arresting Jackie Powell on suspicion of preventing the body, uh, the burial of her body without lawful exercise. After she, she told the channel Four documentary about the existence of the letter and she had never disclosed it to the police. But when they searched her home and the hospital, no sign of the letter could find the burial site. Um, what? And while they were doing that, Winnie Johnson, uh, Keith Bennett's mother, died. I remember kind of the countdown, would they be able to do it? Anyway, shocking. So my assumption is Jackie Powell, shitbag, who either lied to a Channel 4 documentary to make herself seem more important than she was, or 
actually had a letter which said where Keith was buried and didn't give it to the right people and hasn't given it to the right people. And Keith's mother was never able to give her son the Christian burial that she wanted to. So she can she she goes on the shitbag list. Yeah, officially on the shitbag list. But I think it's also really interesting how it seems that Ian has been able to manipulate another person or another woman. For sure. Whatever exposure seems like he probably wouldn't be able to help himself. Around this time, September 1964, so after Keith's murder, Brady and Hindley moved into Hindley's grandmother's home um, on a Hattersley council estate. And Brady met Myra's sister Maureen and her 17-year-old husband, David Smith. Ian in particular was really keen to impress this David guy, which, as you can imagine, ended in some disaster. On the 26th of December 1964, and this fucking kills me the 26th of december 26th of december 10 year old 10 year old leslie ann downey was the pair's fourth and youngest victim they approached her at a fun fair a christmas fun fair fun ground in Ancoats. they approached her and they dropped some shopping they were carrying and asked her for help to take the packages to the car and then to their home. And so interestingly, they brought them to the house and not to the moors. They'd really kind of moved to their home. I have a horrible theory that it's because they wanted to spend more time with them. Oh, yeah. Which makes me feel really nauseous. So Downey was forced to pose for photographs. Oh, my God. And then she was raped and killed. Hindley claims or maintained until her death that she went to fill a bath for Downey. Weird. And then when she got back from filling this bath, Brady had killed her. Whereas Brady claimed that Hindley did it. The next morning, Brady and Hindley drove to Saddleworth Moor with Downey's body and they buried her naked with her clothes in a shallow grave. I guess they're getting also more confident. They've gotten away with it. They've gone away with it multiple times. Nobody suspects them. I'm not even really sure if most of these bodies hadn't been found, they hadn't been they hadn't been connected. Like no one was aware that there was a serial killing pair operating in Manchester. And they wouldn't have been if it hadn't been for what occurred with Edward Evans. And so we talked a little bit about Edward Evans, who met outside a milk vending machine. After all that, they bring Edward Evans back to the house. At some point, Brady says to Hindley, "Go get David Smith." So that's the as you so that's the husband of Hindley's sister Maureen. He's only seventeen years old. Hindley family, I mean the upstanding Hindley family, mm. had not approved of Maureen's marriage to Smith. He had several criminal convictions, including actual bodily harm and housebreaking. For the first of which, his first criminal conviction for wounding with intent occurred when he was 11. What? So, <laughs> no, David Smith was no angel. Um, he is what my dad would call a rough cob. He was <laughs> rough. I don't even know what that means. You know, like a <laughs> corn cob that's been, like a rough corn cob. If you say cob to me, I think a round bread. I think that's just you. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Interestingly, uh, Brady... Uh, had been cultivating this friendship with Smith. He felt, you know, Smith was 17. He was in awe of Brady or kind of looked up to him. And 
Hindi like was a bit like, I don't know about this. I, I think I don't want to bring a third person in. Hindi goes and gets Smith. He tells him to wait outside for her to flash a light. When the signal came, Smith knocks on the door and Brady's there. Uh, and he asked if he had come for the miniature wine bottles and let him left him in the kitchen saying he was going to collect the wine. Here's a little quote from Smith. I was going to do like a Mancurian accent, but I don't think I will. Because I think it's just inappropriate. And also my Mancurian accent is like, it goes a bit Irish and it just doesn't work. Like, what's, so, wait, wait, Mancurian? Mancunian, yeah. So Manchester accent. Okay. I was trying to think of a famous person with like a good accent, but I think all British people who have good regional accents when they come to America just use a neutral American accent. Like David Tennant has a brilliant Scottish accent, but in America just uses his American accent, Jessica, instead of like his nice Scottish one. <laughs> If you haven't watched Jessica Jones, you should. It's really great. Oh, yes. Uh, anyway, all of this is just distractions because I have to read this next paragraph. I waited about a minute or two, then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman, really high-pitched. Then the screams carried on, one after another, really loud. Then I heard Myra shout, Dave, help him, very loud. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room and I saw a young lad. He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head and he hit the lad on the left side of the head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was a terrible hard blow. It sounded horrible. Oh Smith then watched Brady throttle Evans with a length of electrical cord. Brady sprained his ankle in the struggle. It was pretty bloody. And then Evans' body was just too heavy for Smith to carry to the car on his own because they were like, you take this to the car. And Smith was like, what the? So they just wrapped it in plastic sheeting and put it in the spare bedroom. This is awful. It's so awful. Everything about it is awful. You know, it so, really resonated with the sound and like the heaviness of the stuff. Th- also, like, imagine this you're 17 years old. You've had like some trouble with the law, but honestly, in the grand scheme of stuff, it's like you got into some fights, you stole shit from a house, but you're pretty petty as criminals go. And your sister's, sorry, your wife's sister's boyfriend is like, hey, come over. And you come over. And this is what you come over to. The most brutal acts of violence that you'll probably ever see in your lifetime. So Smith, despite his potted past, is not a shitbag. Although, I don't know, but he's not. I I think he, he errs on the side of not a shitbag because of his actions next. So they asked Smith to come back the next day with his baby's pram so they can use it to move Evan's body. Uh. Smith is like, uh, okay, I guess. So he drives home and he gets home around three o'clock in the morning and his wife is still up and he's like, will you make me a tea, cup of tea, love, as you do? And so she does and he drinks it and then he just starts vomiting. He tells her what he had witnessed. He is totally freaked out. So he waits until 6 a.m. He waits for daylight because he's freaked out. 
And he arms himself with a screwdriver and a bread knife in case Brady was out there just waiting to jump him. And I can, like, totally understand this. And this is a time where they don't have, like, phones in your house, right? So Smith goes to the nearest phone box and he calls the police. Well, that's smart. Yeah, this guy's a maniac. He's an absolute fucking maniac. Like, yeah, like, I would be like, is he going to turn up here? Is he going to kill me and the baby and my wife? Like, what the fuck? And, like, I also think, like, fucking good on him for for doing that and for, like, calling the police straight away. Like, I, I think it's really difficult to do that in such a situation where it's, like, people you know and all that. But he was just like, fuck this. These people are insane. Yeah. Of course you wish he could have saved someone. But I would say I would agree with you at this point that he's not a shitbag for stopping future murders. But I was thinking about, like, is he a shitbag? But then I think as described, like, what the fuck – could he have done if Brady was already standing over this kid with a hatchet in his hand? I think that's a tough place to be in against a grown I mean, man with a hatchet. And your fucking psycho sister-in-law too. I will say at least he prevented future murders, if nothing else. Absolutely. So Superintendent Bob Talbot went to 16 Waterbrook Avenue, accompanied by a detective sergeant. He wore a bread delivery man's overall on top of his uniform. Everything about that is so British to me. It's like I've got my little police uniform on, <laughs> which I still wear even though I'm a superintendent, and I might put a bread delivery overall on top. No one will know I'm the police. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they will. <laughs> um so he asked Myra at the back door if her husband was home. She's like, I don't have a husband. There's no man in there. Talbot identifies himself and Hindley leads him into the living room where Brady was lying on a mattress writing to his employer about his ankle injury. <laughs> Everything about that. First of all, like... How shit must it have been to live in the 60s where, like, if you couldn't come to work, you had to write an actual letter and have someone deliver it? Yeah, that sounds bogus. The equivalent of that now is just, like, a shitty text. It's just like, I don't feel well. So Talbot, the superintendent, explained he was investigating an act of violence involving guns that was reported to have taken place the previous evening. So Hindley denies there's been any violence. It's like, look around. Feel free. When so please get to the locked spare bedroom and Hinley and they're like, uh, where's the key? Hinley said it was at her workplace, and the police were like, Yeah, we'll take you to get it. Uh Brady's like, hand it over, and they do, and obviously uh they fu- they find the body inside. Uh when police return to the living room, they arrest Brady on suspicion as murder. As Brady was getting dressed, he said, uh, Eddie and I had a row and the situation got out of hand. At this point, they don't know anything. All the police know right now is that Ian Brady murdered somebody. But they had the yeah. call from David, right? All That's all they have right now. All they know is, is that, uh, you know, Edward's body has been found in their house and they know what David has told them, but they don't know anything else. So Henley's not arrested. She demands to go with Brady to the police station and she takes that fucking dog with her. She refuses to make any statement about Evans' death, aside from saying it was an accident, and she was allowed to go home uh, on the condition that she returns the next day, which seems shocking now, but obviously it makes sense. Yeah. So, Henley just just starts doing normal shit. She visits her employer and asks to be fired so she can claim the doll. 
Of course she does, because she's a psycho too. She finds an envelope uh, belonging to Brady and she burns it in an ashtray. She claims she didn't open it, but she claims it was their bank robbery plan, but it was blatantly some fucking murder shit. Um, and then on eleventh, <laughs> it was. Uh, I know it. On the eleventh of October, she was arrested and she was taken into custody. And she was charged as an accessory to murder and was remanded. So police start searching the house at Waterbrook Avenue, and they found an old exercise book with the name John Kilbride in it. It starts to make them think. Well, we've got these missing young people. Are they involved? So Brady just tells police that he and Evans had fought, but insisted that he and Smith had murdered Evans and that Hindley had only been done what she had been told. So, you know, Ian starts to throw uh, David under the bus and then says that Hindley hasn't done anything. Smith said that Brady had asked him to return anything incriminating, such as dodgy books, which Brady then packed into suitcases. He had no idea where the suitcases were or what they might be, might be, although he mentioned that Brady had a thing about railway stations. Again, these railway stations. They search and they find a claim ticket in Hindley's prayer book for the left luggage office at Manchester Central Railway Station. I remember it was the central station where... Um, Ian had found Edward. And you know, so I'm on the edge of my seat right now, right? <laughs> inside the suitcases, they find costumes, notes, photographs, negatives, but also they find pornographic images of Leslie Ann <gasps> oh. naked with a scarf tied around her mouth and a 16-minute 16, 16 audio tape of her. Ugh. I know you kind of mentioned it earlier, but it's just... It's so awful. A 16-minute audio tape of her screaming and pleading for help. And they had to get her mother to confirm that it was her. Oh, my gosh. And this was all just in a left luggage suitcase. Officers making inquiries at the neighbouring houses spoke to 12-year-old Pat Hodges, who lived next door. She had been taken to Saddleworth Moor by Brady and Hindley several times. 12-year-old Pat Hodges, wherever you are, fucking lucky. Um, And she was able to point out their favourite sites. And so police immediately began to search the area. And on the 16th of October, they found an arm bone protruding from the peat which was presumed at first to be Kilbride's, but they later identified that as Leslie Ann Downey, whose body was still visibly identified. So her mother was able to identify the clothing which had been buried with her. This is... It's so awful. That's what I said. This is the most awful thing. Yeah. Also among the photographs in the suitcase were a number of scenes of the Moors. So Smith had told police that Brady had boasted of photographic proof of multiple murders. Among the photographs in the suitcase were like a number of scenes of the Moors, including that really infamous photo of Hindley over um, John Kilbride's grave um, and Paul, Paul and you know various other photos of the grave sites. Officers were really struck by Brady's decision to remove apparently innocent landscapes from the house, so they did have them around the house, um, and they appealed to locals for assistance finding locations to match the photographs. The same day, already being held for the murder of Evans, Brady and Hindley appeared at Hyde Magistrates Court and they were charged with Leslie Ann's murder as well. 
They were brought before the court separately and they were reminded of custody for a week. They made a two-minute appearance on the 28th of October and were reminded again. So the investigators' officers suspected Brady and Hindley of murdering other missing children and teenagers who had disappeared from the areas in and around Manchester over the previous years. Um, and after the search of bodies continued after the discovery of Kilbride, but with winter setting in and winter on the moors is like very, very cold. Uh, they called it off in November. Um, when they presented with the evidence of the tape recording of Leslie Ann, Brady admitted to taking the photographs of Downey, but insisted that she had been brought to Waterbrook Avenue by two men who had subsequently taken her away again alive. Two mysterious men. Um, but by the 2nd of December, 65, Brady had been charged with the murders of Kilbride, Downey and Evans, and Hendley had been charged with the murders of Downey and Evans and being an accessory to the murder of Kilbride. After the committal hearing on the 6th of December, Brady was charged. Um, I got to say, I'm pretty impressed with these police not just giving up at the surface level evidence of what they found, kind of asking themselves like, hey, we've had some missing children. Should we you know, proceed with this and not giving up on that? That's not an easy kind of case to make, I think, given the lack of evidence in a lot of ways until they found the photographs and all that stuff. But that could have very easily just gone away and or be, been lost to time so that they managed to find these suitcases and they really like thought that those photographs were strange what's interesting is that you know we've talked a little bit about this you know Hindley's dog the dog's name was puppet um i'm going to talk about dogs here everyone gets so upset about dogs and this is really bad but to help date the photos detectives had a veterinary surgeon examine the dog to determine his age so they could kind of track the dates with the dog the examination required a general aesthetic uh, anesthetic and puppet died during the examination and henley was absolutely furious and she accused the police of murdering the dog Detectives say it was one of the few occasions that they witnessed any emotional response from her. And Hindley wrote to her mother at the time and said, I feel as though my heart's been torn to pieces. I don't think anything could hurt me more than this has. The only consolation is that some mor moron might have got hold of Puppet and hurt him. This is like, you care about your dog? What about the fucking children you murdered? Yeah, I love dogs too, but this is psychotic. Poor Puppet didn't do anything, so it's sad. This was the only thing that she had an emotional response to. Again, just leads me to believe massive, great, big fucking shitbag. I second that. They ended up going to trial. It was a 14-day trial. There was a ton of security around it, obviously, because, you know, this is a tight community. Like, I haven't spent much time in Manchester, but I've spent some time... Uh, up north and you know those communities are, are, are wonderful like just really great people and they're you know, really tight and you know we see from this again and again that they knew each other and, and these were their children um and this this is a crime that really affected everybody uh david smith was the chief prosecution witness he accepted a huge amount of money from the news of the world at the time which at the time he accepted a thousand pounds and a 15 pounds weekly until the trial for his story and that was kind of like a big deal david smith ended up move like divorcing his wife moving to ireland and changing his name yeah. uh which i can imagine you'd want to get away from this both hindley and brady entered pleas of not guilty motherfuckers 
Brady attempted, Brady admitted to striking Evans with the axe, but claimed that someone else had killed Evans. Brady was calm. He had an undisguised arrogance and the jury and everyone there were like, no fucking way. Henley denied any knowledge that the photographs of Saddleworth Moore found by police had been taken near the graves of their victims, which is obviously not true. A 16-minute tape recording of Downey, so that tape, on which, like, Brady and Henley's voices are audible on that tape, by the way, so it's not just her. Henley admitted that her attitude toward Downey was brusque and cruel, but she claimed she was only like that because someone might hear Downey screaming. Screw you, Henley. And Henley claimed that when Downey was being undressed, she herself was downstairs when the pornographic photos were being taken and that she was looking out the window. It's the lamest thing I've ever heard. I know, it's fucking lame. Everything about it is lame and disgusting. It's just like, admit what you fucking did. The jury deliberated for like two hours. They were like, yeah, no. Uh, And the jury found Brady and Hindley guilty of the murders. Um, The death penalty um, in the UK had been abolished um, very recently, like while they were on remand. So judge passed the only sentence that law allowed, which was life imprisonment. Brady was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences and Hindley was given two, plus a concurrent seven-year term for harboring Brady in the knowledge that he had killed uh, Kilbride. And they were sent to Durham Prison in Holloway. Wow. Those are the Moore's murderers. And there's so much more surrounding this case in terms of like, searches how long it took to like get them to admit the additional murders obviously all that terrible stuff with Keith um, and how just how long you know how Keith's family still don't have his body and, and how strongly that they want want it obviously no one can blame them um they they had like visits to the moors they did all sorts of things in order to try um and get this but unfortunately, Keith has still not been found. Henley didn't really remember. I think she did. I mean, who can tell? But I think she did genuinely try to help them locate Keith's body. But it's really Ian that kind of knew knew more um, and they were unable to do it. There's also been a ton of after investigation in any time of this case, they really wanted to connect Brady and Henley to more children. There were there was a West Yorkshire boy named Stephen Jennings who had been missing, um, but the following year, his father was found guilty of his murder. Uh, there was a woman, sorry, a young girl named Jennifer Ty, who was fourteen, who had disappeared from Oldham. But yeah, it was later confirmed that she was alive. In 2004, there were claims that Hindley had told another inmate that she had murdered a sixth victim, which was a teenage girl. So there was all sorts of stuff. Could they connect them? But um, I think in conclusion, uh, you know, this they were convicted for the murders that they committed. Incredible. Uh, You know, I had read a blurb and I remember the picture of these two kind of, you know, uh, Myra stood out, as you mentioned, with the hair. But I had no idea the depths of this case or the extreme violence. Ian Brady and Mara Hindley, shitbags of the highest order, but in terms of what they put their victims through, and just, I think, a lot of the hallmarks of kind of modern serial killers in terms of, like, the rituals that they went through, the documentation, the trophies, they were living with, like, members of Hindley's family and had their trophies out on display. 
they were obviously meticulously planned in terms of hiding shovels and things on the moors miles and miles as far as the eye can see of just totally wild peat boggy peat and hills and it's very cold and you know you would really need to know your way around it's very barren it's very large beautiful absolutely beautiful um but definitely a difficult place to you know find people and absolutely bonkers in terms of like the levels of like violence that they inflicted on their um victims yeah the planning the the escalation seemed like they were getting more and more bold more and more out of control but i think it's pretty interesting is that they kind of went to children because they were easier to control and then you know they ended up with with edward evans who seemed like more that they could handle and then that brought in you know dave they got who ultimately called the police on them. So I think they got too overconfident in terms of what they were able to do. And and if they had kept to abducting children and burying them on the moors, like God knows how high their victim count would have been. Good on David. Yeah, David, you we declare you not a shitbag. I'm not saying I would want to hang out with you. Although maybe I'd want to have a conversation. No, I don't think I would. As fascinated as I am sometimes, I don't know. That might be too close. So this has been a heck of an episode and a complete downer in terms of everything that happened. But um, I haven't seen or heard many podcasts about this this murder. And I, I thought it had so many interesting aspects. So I hope everyone who's out there listening enjoyed it. I know I was fascinated by the story and learned a lot more than I ever knew about this particular one. Thank you everyone for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, uh, please feel free to go to darkfascination.com. You can join our Facebook group, uh, Dark Fascination. You can like, rate and subscribe. That really helps us out. So please feel free. Um, there's several email addresses like info at darkfascination.com um, that you can get on our website. If you'd like to send us any stories, give us any feedback, correct anything that I've said wrong, which is probably a ton of stuff. Um, and also if you have any ideas for cases that you want us to cover or anything that you'd want to hear about, please feel free to get in touch. We also have an Instagram and a Twitter and all of that good stuff. And it's mostly dark fascination. I think Instagram is dark fascination podcast. Um, but all our links are on darkfascination.com or drop by the Facebook page. Stay safe, stay dark. and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening.